0: Welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China going back to about 1839, working forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a sort of love letter and farewell letter to that country. If you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please rate and review this podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, uh, others, anyway. uh, Share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. All right. As as we get into the episode for today, I'll say again, we are uh, going from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Uh, Right now, we're looking at the foreign representatives who came to meet Hong Rengan, the cousin of the Taiping rebels Heavenly King, and effectively the foreign minister. Last week we talked about ba- uh, Issachar Roberts, the mediocre Southern Baptist preacher, loose-canon missionary, self-funded because he, uh, more discerning and circumspect agencies wouldn't take him as a supported missionary. This week, uh, more missionary representatives, but coming from more conventional interests, not just highly motivated loners. Keep in mind that lone eccentric or formal representatives seconded to a revolutionary movement, um, either one, you know, you're either Lawrence of Arabia without the British Army backing him or with the British Army backing him, it all shows how ideas flow from one place to another. So um, a point I'll return to uh, from the last episode this period in Chinese history helps illustrate how complete Chinese revolution, uh, China's revolution is going to have to be, to be fully successful. They're going to have to reconstitute the state and their way of doing foreign relations all at the same time. For many centuries, China did not... No, did... sorry, I... I'm looking at my outline a bit far away. I've got the microphone in the way. Anyway, China had a sophisticated foreign diplomacy network that it was part of. You know, It was the center, and it set the standards and the norms for East Asian diplomacy. It was the one granting legitimacy and the tokens of legitimacy and Though its control over subordinate states was not really very tight at all, the winners of an internal struggle in, say, Korea or Burma had to go to China to receive the traditional tokens of Chinese recognition. As we move on from the Taiping Rebellion, we'll see China as it starts under the Qing to try to work with the new norms and standards decided in Europe You can kind of look at this as, see, an anthropology of religion, I remember from this class I had in college, tribal societies have the big distant creator god, but then they have the closer, more familiar gods like Zeus and the Olympians, who did not create the world, they just governed it. Um, When the outside world comes in, they might turn to a religion like Christianity or Islam because they see that as kind of their big creator god, but in a way that uh, connects with the outside world that has butted into their previously secluded life wherever they are in the world. So one interpretation of the Russian Revolution, which was communist, was that they were waiting for the revolutions they were sure would happen in Europe, uh, that they would come to their aid uh, that didn't happen, so basically the u s s r was the Russian empire reborn, but with communist official ideology. so how that makes sense with the anthropology of religion example well the you know something has happened in the world that has disrupted the you know the the way that they understood the world but there's something within what they already understood that they can lean on that is already in their culture so that when there's when there's a bump when there's when everything gets juggled there's some way that they shift gears some axis still in their culture on which they pivot so the russian revolutionaries uh the the worldwide communist revolution wasn't going to happen not the way they thought it would but russianness the model of the russian empire uh russian national identity was the model that reemerged despite the international aspirations of the communist movement, the fact that it was centered on Russia, that it was made up of Russian nationals, uh, shaped what it was going to become. That, you know, from the Tsar to the Soviet Union, to the 1990s and then the Putin era, you can see very clear ideas of what Russia is as a state. And so we're going to see how China remains China through all of the revolutions that we're going to be looking at. And in what I just talked about, I'm drawing on insights partly also from the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan, He's currently doing appendices episodes, reflecting on everything learned over the course of that podcast. Fantastic. It's really worth going through, and it, in, it inspired this one. When a society goes through a revolution, the natural selection process, as it were, determines what national characteristics will make it through to the next state of historical development. For instance, if China today is a developing nation— so-called they'll be darned if they aren't the ones to show other developing nations how to develop a core part of Chinese identity is that they're that they've got something to show to the world and that's gonna keep poking through whatever shape China takes so now to the subject of the visitors to Hong Rangan. Uh We'll be going over two today. One is Welsh missionary Griffith John in November 1860. Um, He was cautious. He was a little bit uncertain about how he would be received. He was anticipating resentment because of the military force used on the Taiping forces near Shanghai. Uh, The Taiping had approached with friendliness to the foreigners, but their uh, soldiers were blown back with cannon fire from foreigners manning city defenses. Well, he got a friendly reception in Nanjing anyway. As we discussed in a previous episode, they the Taiping thought maybe they wanted to be like the British or the Americans, not the, the French, who they thought maybe were the ones firing the cannons. Well, Griffith John was making a visit, a fact-finding mission of sorts. He's not coming up to to set up a base in Nanjing yet, but he's eyeing out the place as a possible place to base missionary efforts from. He took away an edict from the Heavenly King, written on yellow silk in red letters, uh, inviting missionaries to come and base themselves in Nanjing. This is another case of missionaries believing that the Taiping Rebellion was God's tool to do away with the worship of false gods in China, Opening the way for the true faith to come through foreign missionaries, um, you know. So, like th- this is this is how they saw it that the the that the the Taiping were God's way of destroying idols and opening the way for you know, people to be more receptive to the true faith, Christianity. Well. That's up to God if that's what he was doing, but um that's only for him to know really uh but for our podcast, we're going by what the human beings were thinking that's that's what they saw uh with the uh, unequal treaties with the with China opened to foreign missionary work. They, they were seeing this as their chance to get in and save souls in China. Um, so it was a, one of the things that we're going to see in future revolutions is how the Chinese take ideas and they make them their own and do their own thing with what comes in from the outside. For his part, Griffith John thought that the Heavenly King was, you know, wrote like a lunatic, um, but that Hong Rangan was possibly someone who could be an agent of change. Um, he, he could see that the Taiping believed in the divinity of the Heavenly King and practiced holding multiple wives. Even Hong Gan did this, explaining that he was just following the fashion of the Taiping court just to kind of fit in with everybody to retain influence. He evaluated the Taiping religion as a heretical movement, so it's not true Christianity, and it would need foreign missionaries to set their doctrines right. He was personally enthusiastic about setting up a base in Nanjing, but Protestant colleagues in Shanghai told him he'd pretty much be on his own because it was very, very uncertain how everything was going to shake out and a colleague steered him towards the possibility of working in Shandong province, opened by the treaties signed after the Second Opium War. Well, but anyway, he wrote back to London that the Taiping were winning, and he believed that the Qing dynasty was on its way out. So, on, on the one side, he didn't think very much of the Taiping religion and ideology, but he thought that, They were the next thing up and coming in China, so uh, maybe missionary agencies ought to look forward to working with the Taiping. The other guy we'll talk about is Yung Wing, a Chinese graduate of Yale University. He had spent most of his life in Hong Kong and New England. Um, So that's British influence and then northeastern United States influence. Characters such as he uh, will be more common as we move forward with other revolutions. Um, He found work as a tea trader when he got back to China, but he wanted to go into politics, and he went with Griffith John to explore the Taiping movement as an opportunity for China's future. So the question he was trying to answer is, could the Taiping manage it, ruling China according to modern European and North American standards? As he traveled to Nanjing, he pretty much observed that for whatever devastation the Taiping could be blamed for, war itself is pretty devastating, so it's not uniquely the fault of the Taiping. On the way, he met European and American soldiers and doctors helping the Taiping, like, okay, that's an interesting footnote. In Nanjing, he met Issachar Roberts and did not think very much of Roberts. I don't think very much of him myself. You know, he's one of those odds and ends who ends up over there. He met Hong Ren Gan and was, in fact, an old acquaintance of Hong Ren Gan from the time that they were both together in Hong Kong, when Hong Ren Gan was working with missionary James Leg. They had a similar background, similar experience with foreign culture, technology, politics, uh, other foreign ideas that could be imported into China. Hong Rengan wanted him to join the Taiping. Yung Wing declined to join, but he left some suggestions for how to modernize the um, kind of the secrets of British and foreign power. Uh, And I'm quoting directly from Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. His suggestions were as follows, to organize an army on scientific principles, to establish a military school for the training of competent military officers, to establish a naval school for the Navy, to organize a civil government with able and experienced men to act as advisors in the different departments of administration, to establish a banking system, and to determine, on a standard of weights and measures, To establish an educational system of graded schools for the people, making the Bible one of its textbooks. To organize a system of industrial schools. And so, in summary, modern military, American-style schools, preferably Christian, and an industrial economy. Incidentally, you see this in China today, minus the Bible as a main textbook. When I was teaching English in China, I did teach some Bible stories because those are important sources of metaphors and literary tropes and you know, like so a Christ figure in a film, even if the director and producers are if they're atheists, you know, there's still an important understanding there. but you you see all of these that came through, that, that did make it through the Chinese revolutions up to today. Hong Ren Gan substantially agreed, but he said that the rest of the Taiping leadership was focused on winning the war, that reforms would have to wait for after the war. Hong Ren Gan still wanted to recruit Yung Wing. He sent Yung Wing robes and the seal of a Taiping official, but He uh, asked instead for a passport to be able to freely travel through Taiping territory. Now, really, uh, Yung Wing, the tea trader, did this not to learn about the Taiping and how they ran their part of China, but he went to buy tea in rebel territory to sell to foreign merchants in Shanghai. And... According to Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, Hongren Gan would never see him again. Incidentally, uh, meetings like this in history are fascinating. Someone comes in and sees a historically significant place at a historically significant time, and they're out of there again on their own uh, mission. Like, uh, there was an interesting story of novelist Graham Greene flying in and out of the siege of dien bien phu which is the which is when vietnamese communist forces besieged french colonial forces in northern vietnam in the 1950s dien bien phu was the sort of battle of yorktown using an american revolution example kind of last major battle that pretty much sealed the deal for the end of colonial rule in vietnam the closest I might get to being like that was when I was in China for the beginning of COVID-19. I was just living and working there, trying to advance my own career. You know, I was hardly on the front lines fighting the disease, though I was part of China's international publicity efforts, You know, working for Chinese state media. I might have a parallel of sorts with Issachar Roberts, who didn't really take control of the Taiping movement, but he was useful for getting out their point of view. But it's interesting to consider how much more sophisticated China's engagement with the world is. Today, when I was getting into Chinese media, I was looking at samples of videos they had put out. It seems like if you look at like every five years, you know, like 1995, 2000, 2005, 2010, 2015, there's a definite shift in quality. They've been actively upgrading their production quality, narrative building film quality, foreign language abilities. Chinese colleagues taught me things about English writing. They had precise and intelligent questions about why I made certain odd grammar choices, and they were often more right in some of those exchanges than I was i you know I have I think of myself as an artist sometimes so that goes into my ego but they're professionals, and they know what they're doing. They can competently edit English grammar. So, you know, so I I flew out when the dust had settled enough for me to be reasonably certain that I could get out of China. You know, quarantines, flight cancellations, getting caught between. Well, I got out when it was stable enough that... I could make a successful trip. Um, I made two significant one way international trips during COVID and didn't spend a single day in quarantine anywhere ever. I went from China to Romania, then several months later, Romania back to America. Um, so that's, okay, sorry, personal interlude. So we see people like Hong Ran Gan who know how to select ideologically. Uh, neutral ideas systems and methods from abroad uh, ideologically neutral because like a modern school system well you can put communism at the head of that you can put a religion at the head of that but it's it's a technique it's a system it's a it's a way of organizing education uh And you can use that to propel your philosophy, your religion, your ideology. Uh, But the domestic politics are where the critical local decision makers take one path or the other that will make the revolution succeed or fail. And further, success or failure to resolve certain local issues, maybe even requiring the implementation of foreign ideas, will be the success or failure of the revolution. So one question, and I ask this just to kind of stir thought, not really to, I I don't know, I just write these episodes, and so you're along with me for the ride as I figure out what was going on through modern Chinese revolutions. Is political control of the territory the success of a revolutionary movement? Our thesis is developing in this podcast, the finish line that I can see so far, that's the complete restoration of Chinese sovereignty, which today is pretty much done. Uh, The China runs itself. That no, they don't have everything exactly as they'd like it, but no country does anywhere. If the Taiping would have won, would they have been able to get the foreigners out of China, such as things were after the Opium Wars? Could the Qing have reformed the imperial administration to be able to move into the modern world such that there would still be a Chinese emperor? China moving into the modern world requires China to be able to compete internationally and have its domestic policy and international policy decisions stick, and that's not going to be resolved in the current revolution. You know, today, if China decides something, China decided, and that's what's going to happen. Uh, but not so much with the Taiping. Hong Rengan tells yung Wing that the war keeps him from being able to put a lot of the idea the modernization ideas into practice but so far what i can see with the taiping movement was in certain ways it was too chinese to be able to succeed unconscious attitudes about china's place in the world kind of rose to the top in how the taiping leadership did things it prevented complete acceptance of foreign ideas that it could have used Like so, like why insist on a capital in Nanjing? Were they trying too much to set up a capital, not enough of a practical refuge? Like like they they haven't won the war yet, and there's a lot of effort going into whatever the hell they are doing in Nanjing. Like if you have political infighting, that. Focuses the decision making and the planning inward, not outward, to organizing the the push for ultimate victory over the enemy. So they they haven't won their revolution yet. So maybe setting up in Nanjing, like like see when when you have the communists, they set up in Yan'an. But Yan'an is remote, it is defensible, it's, it was where they could set up after the long march, uh, escaping Chiang Kai-shek. We'll get there in a lot of episodes later. But Nanjing, they went for the symbolic prize, but, well, we'll come back to that. The being Chinese thing is a critical part of the success or failure of a revolution, as we're going to be exploring them, but the Taiping couldn't lose it enough to save it. The major thing that we're going to see in future revolutions is the fight over what it means to be part of the thing that we know as China. Han nationalism is going to be a pivotal part of of the next revolutions that we'll see, and the Han people being about 92% of the population of China, like when you see Chinese people and you think of Chinese people, you're thinking of Han, the Han ethnicity, Han culture. So that when you see the revolution that will overthrow the Qing dynasty, Han nationalism is going to be a pivotal part of that. Well, thank you for coming along for today's episode. Um, if I got anything wrong, please write in at Chinese Revolutions at gmail dot com. Due to the nature of this podcast, I, I'm evolving as I learn things. So, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com dot com slash cr podcast. If you'd like to join the Substack, please go to Chinese if you'd like to give me ideas about what to put in the sub-stack, uh, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. And see you in the next episode.